Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, producer of the show. I'm so excited about the next four weeks. We're talking about how are you feeding your brain? You heard me right. How are you feeding your brain? Hey, this is like, I know that I say this every week, but super special guest. Let me just go ahead and jump right in and tell you. Well, actually, let me wait just a second. You do know that Ian has a brand new book out, right? The Story of You. If you haven't gotten that book yet, make sure you go get it. And one more thing I want to say. We have this great community called the Typology Institute Membership. Every month for our members, we have a special podcast, a newsletter, and my very favorite thing, which is called a town hall, where we get together with all of the members online. We talk about the podcast that month. We talk about the Typology podcast. The conversation goes all kinds of places. It's super fun. There's lots of dialogue. Ian answers all your questions. Super, super fun. Make sure you check that out. It's $15 a month or $150 for the whole year. And it's a really, really cool experience. And we're doing more stuff with that all the time. To learn more, just simply go to typologyinstitute.com. That's T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y institute.com. Okay, now let me get to our guest because this is like a thrill right here. Again, all this month, we're talking about how to feed your brain. And to kick that off, we've got father and son duo, Dr. Rick and Forrest Hansen. Dr. Rick Hansen is a PhD. Type 7 is a psychologist, senior fellow at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, and a New York Times bestselling author. He's the author of six books that have been published in 30 languages. He's lectured at NASA, Google, Oxford, and Harvard. He's taught in meditation centers worldwide. He's an expert on positive neuroplasticity, and his work's been featured on CBS, NPR, the BBC, and other major media outlets. He began meditating in 1974, and he's the founder of Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. Forrest Hansen, his son, Type 6, is a best-selling author and the host and producer of the Being Well podcast. Being Well is a weekly podcast that features conversations between Dr. Rick, Hansen, Forrest, and a variety of world-class experts. We've got them both on the show for you today. Type 7, Type 6, we're talking neuroplasticity, neuroscience, how to feed your brain, lots and lots of good stuff. Super glad you're here, people. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And without any further ado, here is the host of our show, Ian Cron. Hello, Typology Tribe. I am so excited today for our two guests uh, to join us. I want to introduce to you Dr. Rick Hansen, his son, Forrest Hansen. He is the author of Neurodharma, Science, Ancient Wisdom, Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. Uh, he's author of Buddha's Brain, The Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom, a book that I greatly enjoyed. Welcome, Forrest and Rick. We're so happy to have you here. Oh, really glad to be here. And I should also put in a plug for Forrest, co-author of our recent book, Resilient, uh, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness. You had to get the authorial plug for me in there somewhere, Dad. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's well deserved. It's well deserved. (laughs) Well, and Forrest, I recently was on a podcast with you. 
Yep. Yeah. Being well, that's the podcast that we normally do together. Rick and I, Rick was recovering from a shoulder procedure. So unfortunately he couldn't make our conversation, but we had a great time talking. It was great to talk with you, Ian. Well, we're, we're going to make up for that today. So (laughs) for sure, for sure. I, I am thrilled. So, um, Rick, you identify as an Enneagram seven, a social mm-hmm. seven. I was impressed mm-hmm. that you knew the subtype. And uh, Forrest, <laughs> you are a six. Yes, I'm a six. I'm, a, I'm the, in the counterphobic variety. So the classic push against the concerns. That's right. The, all that little bit of oppositional energy happening in there, right? Under, Absolutely. Under its core is a little bit of anxiety, though, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, My mom was a phobic six or is a phobic six, I should say. And so we had a pretty fun time ping ponging against each other when I was younger. Her concern, my pushing away of the concern. Yeah, really, really healthy family dynamic, as you can imagine. But we worked through it. Well, let's uh, let's just start there for a moment. Um, uh, Rick, you um, uh, prior to our hitting record, you were talking about your experience with the Enneagram going back a long time. Can you just uh, just sort of give us a overview of your exposure to the Enneagram? Yeah, short version is that I encountered it through two men who were engaged with consulting with attorneys about jury selection in big high profile trials. There's a whole kind of sub-profession of people who do that. And they were using the Enneagram in part to type jurors with regard to particular issues that might arise, you know, during the trial and then informing the attorneys who are making choices about who to let in and not let in. And and at one level, it seemed a little bit like almost cheating. And yet, on the other hand, this kind of process happens all the time with jury selection. So they uh, they talked with me a little bit. and I did some business type work for them. I was about 26 or 7 at the time. And they typed me as a social 7. And I walked away from that, and I learned a bit about the Enneagram in general and my own type in particular, and I was depressed for three days. <laughs> I just felt horrible because I was just dropped into facing the narcissistic injury, to, in, to unpack that term, the, you know, the impact in a stable, loving, decent, you know, lower middle class suburban LA upbringing. Nonetheless, 10,000 deficits, right? The Absence of the good can be just as consequential as the presence of the bad. 10,000 little moments where there was a lack of mirroring, attunement, empathic resonance with my parents and then with my peers because I was about a year and a half or two years younger than most kids in school because I skipped a grade and I have an extremely late, extremely late birthday. So the net of all that was that there was this longing for prizing and mirroring and inclusion that had been unmet. So then around it, I was really pushy about getting those kind of supplies. Mm-hmm. And with a lot of repressed and you know disowned sorrow and inadequacy underneath it all. So I just dropped through the, uh, <laughs> through the ice into that murky, smelly pool <laughs> you know, for those three days. And then somehow, I don't know, I just kind of dusted myself off and I was like, all right, I got it. I I really need to deal with my dilettantism, you know, my kind of Pied Piperishness and my endless planning and deferring commitment to this and that and just take a big breath and get going. And I mm-hmm. wished I had encountered the Enneagram when I was 17 rather than when I was 27. It would have saved mm-hmm. me 10 years probably of just wandering uh, in a lot of ways, kind of in the realm of the hungry ghosts, if you know yes. that Buddhist metaphor 
uh, which is, for me is a little bit apt for certain aspects of narcissistic hunger. Mm. And maybe yes. I'll just finish by saying that of all the uh, personality systems I've been trained in as a longtime clinical psychologist, I've, I consider the Enneagram to be the most accurate generally. It's the most informative, it's the richest. Uh, people fit it the best um, of really any system I know. Mm. I think that any system on any given day that can kind of account for at least 50, about 50% of who you are, given individual variation, that's a fantastic system. Mm. And the Enneagram is definitely that, I think, for most people. You know, I know that you uh, are a pioneer in the world of positive psychology. Is that is that a oh. fair uh, assessment? Yeah, no, the spin I would put on it just to preempt, you know, certain considerations is that I really focus on the process of growing inner resources, strengths inside in a very almost old school, self-reliant kind of way. How do you develop grit, patience, compassion, insight, moral inclinations, commitment to exercise or sobriety, whatever it is you want to grow inside, including happiness altogether. Um, and so the process of doing that involves opening to beneficial experiences of these various inner resources and then helping those experiences lead to lasting change in your nervous system mm -hmm. so that you're moving from states to traits and developing lasting healing, growing, and awakening. So I would say that's my own particular uh, focus on that. It could be summarized as taking in the good that would be trivialized by thinking that it is merely a matter of smelling the roses along the way. Yeah, smell the roses along the way. But the point for me is really focused in a kind of clear-eyed take about how do we actually grow stably, resilient well-being in the core of our being so that we're more equipped to deal with the challenges of life and also have happiness along the way. Yes. And I only say this because we recently had an Enneagram 7. I mean, this happens a lot with us, right, with authors who come on. And uh, the name of his new book, which is a New York Times bestseller right now, is called Undistracted, which just made me laugh my head off. And then uh, because, of course, you know, uh, you know, a major trait of Enneagram 7s is this monkey mind, right, this sort of... Uh, like a hummingbird moving from w one flower to the next, you know, yeah. with fascination and curiosity, but oftentimes never probing into its very depths, you know. And, mm -hmm. and, and uh, then, then when I was uh, researching our, for our conversation today, and I saw that th there were a number of articles and YouTube things on there about your work in the realm of positive psychology. And I was like, yeah. well, of course. <laughs> uh, right. It would be very on brand. Absolutely. I mean, and... You know, this is where I'm sure we'll get into it, you know, like the more or less evolved versions of each type, as mm -hmm. it were. But, um, you know, the image of the Enneagram 7 of Errol Flynn swinging across the pit full of alligators with a big grin on his face, right, swinging on a vine across the pit. I mean, there is there that defensive movement away from suffering. But I think that, um, on the other hand, as we grow different kind of strengths inside, including positive mood, we become more equipped to face the suffering mm -hmm. that resides in our own heart and in, and in the hearts of other people. Yes. And so for me, um, sevenishness, you know, it's actually served me well in some ways because it's, it's actually helped me find refuges inside myself and looking out at the world from which I can face and bear and process and open to my own pain. 
so beautifully said. And I think what you're talking about there is uh, an evolved, um, uh, awakened seven, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe the best way I could maybe describe that is, is you know, when we think about the waterline of consciousness and, you know, what's mm -hmm. above the waterline, right? Yeah. And the more material we can bring out from under the waterline of consciousness into the realm of the conscious, right? The better yeah. off we're going to be, right? It might be hurt, it might be painful, it may be hard to work through, yeah. but the better off we're going to be. And I think when I talk about an evolved type, I, I think about the journey of the, the person intentionally doing that work to face mm. the shadow aspects, the strength aspects, right? Uh, not to get, mm. you know, um, mired in those particular areas of our life that are challenges, but as you would say, to also then draw resources from the strengths yeah. of, of that type to create more resilience and strength and awakening and happiness and all of those things. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you're self-describing uh, when you talk about your, your experience that you have, you know, you're an evolved seven, right? That uh, has, has <laughs> work done in the progress. Work. Well, we, yeah, I mean, we all aided are. by my son routinely. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's right, that's right. And speaking of your son, Forrest, you are a six on, on yes. the Enneagram. You're a counter. You identify as a counterphobic six. Tell I me do, about yes. that. Tell me about that journey and your journey with the Enneagram. Yeah. Totally. Um, as you might imagine, first time I bumped into it was around the dinner table. I was probably 12-ish years old, 13-ish years old. So I got a very early introduction to it. Um, and I have no idea how we got into it, but I know that I immediately took to it. I really enjoyed this the system. I thought that it was so descriptive. That's part of why I liked it. It felt... Um, I was very into playing fantasy games as a kid. So these, these felt like classes that people were in, kind of, if you've ever played a fantasy video game. Um, but I myself didn't feel very well described by it. Uh, even as I aged in my early 20s, still didn't feel very well described by it. I was falling into that kind of 50% of people, or maybe less than that, who, even if they like the system, they don't necessarily feel like it speaks to, to their nature, their heart. Um, as you know, though, uh, sixes are kind of tricky to describe sometimes because they're one of the few types that is broken into these different aspects. And uh, I was talking, I actually had the, the great opportunity to talk with uh, Sleeping At Last. He's got a great podcast on the Enneagram, on uh, our podcast, Being Well. And one of the things that he said is he was like, yeah, we have a hard time talking about sixes. And I think that that's pretty true because of mm. these split aspects. And I finally ran into the idea of a counterphobic six. And I went, oh, my God, here it is. This is me. Because I don't really relate to the you know, um, the imagery that we often have about a phobic six constantly searching for the exit or really always looking outside of the self for something else to attach to, that didn't necessarily speak to me. But the more that I drilled into it, the more that I realized that the way in which I was doing this was much more abstract and it was much more about pushing away the potential for anxiety-provoking experiences, mm. coming up with all the reasons I didn't need to be worried about something, the reasons that it was just going to work out okay for me in the end, mm. all of that very much a central part of my personality. Mm. And the ideas that I was attaching to, that idea of like the six as the loyalist, which for me, I was like, I, I mean, I think of myself as being a loyal person, but that is my whole phenotype. I don't, I don't know about that one. Um, but I realized what I was doing is I was applying this to like big ideas, big structures of thought. I was looking for the people who I thought were really smart and really new. And then I went, oh yeah, that's it. I'm going to trust that. 
Um, so it was a sort of searching outside of the self for for affirmation and for identity. And I think that um, that's something that I'm still really involved in. Mm. Well, you actually describe some features of sixes in a beautiful way, which is, for example, when I'm when I'm leading corporate workshops or just, you know, workshops in the general uh, public, someone will come up to me at the end of the day and they'll be like, what number on the Enneagram can't figure out their number on the Enneagram when they get to the end of the workshop? And I went, maybe you're a six. Sixes or nines, uh, probably. Sixes, yeah. yeah. Sixes, and but really sixes are the one yeah. that, that really struggle to figure out their type because they, they struggle with ambivalence. Mm, and, mm-hmm. and, and, mm, a, mm. and there's a lot of self-questioning that goes on in the mind of a six. Yeah. Um, the other reason a counterphobic six would struggle with it is because you are fundamentally suspicious at first. And so this was another element of it that I was like, yes, this is me to a T. Absolutely. Like my dad's laughing probably off to the <laughs> side right now because I, I am Captain Questioner. Absolutely. Um, I really like things that feel to me, quote unquote, evidence-based. It's why I really struggled uh, with spirituality and, and a lot of existentialism initially mm-hmm. when I first started bumping into it. And I really had this very dogmatic logician-driven view of the world that I think has softened a little bit over the years um, as I've gotten more comfortable with don't-know-mind or giving it up to the things that are unknowable or however you want to frame that. Um, Those have become more healthily integrated, but they were total stumbling blocks for me. Mm. And what you're describing there really is a very evolved six, right? This capacity (laughs) to live... uh, with a, a sense of peace with when there's a lack of certitude. Um, and mm. it, it, I think that really is the part of the journey of the sixth into self-awareness and, a, and positive integration yeah. is this capacity to be like, and also the capacity to say, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. And to mm. just sort of carry that mantle, you know, mm. not in a naive way, but in a profoundly deep, deep, deep way. Uh, the sense that the universe can be trusted, you know, that the, as, as James Houston would say, you know, like the ultimate question, I think of Houston that said that, you know, we, um, uh, the biggest question we have to answer is, is the universe, oh no, maybe it was Einstein, is the universe a safe place in which to live, you know? Yeah. And for sixes to be able to say, I think so, you know, it's. You said that so beautifully there, Ian, I just want to kind of give you credit. I think that was such a wonderful way to, to frame that. Um, and for me, I, I often find conversations about the Enneagram to be very emotionally evoking. I, I don't know if that's yeah. your experience or not, because we're, we're playing with powerful forces, right? You're talking about the nature of safety and security out in the world and this deep process of identity seeking. Mm. And for me in my own journey with it, I'm, I'm at the point where I'm aware of these processes inside of my system. And also, you know, I'm, I'm 34. I'm still figuring a lot of stuff out. I'm still going on the adventure. So the awareness is there. The application is not always consistently there. But we've gotten through the awareness stage, which is good. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That is fantastic. Yeah. I, you know, I'm oftentimes telling people, Forrest, that, that, you know, when they first get around the Enneagram, they get almost uh, radicalized by it. You know, mm. they just mm. can't. They just think to themselves, this is it. This completely explains who I am. And I, they get a little frothy mouthed, you know, and I'm a little bit like, eh, yeah. because you are not actually your personality. 
right? Your mm-hmm. personality mm-hmm. is not who you are. It's a feature of who you are, yeah. but it isn't who you are. There, yeah. there's, there's so much behind the persona, the mask, that mm-hmm. the, the, and there's the complexity, the spirituality, the mystery, the, all of those kinds of things that we, we have to take into account when we are talking about the, the human person, person. And also we have to, I think, in my opinion, always sort of maintain this posture of, of, of agnosticism, this, this space mm. of, I, of not knowing, and then also being okay with the not knowing, you know? Hmm. That's a really interesting point you're making there, Ian, that relates to what Forrest was saying about skepticism, or I would introduce the word doubt. And before we started, we were talking a little bit about mapping from, let's say, Buddhist typologies of people or factors within people to pay attention to and to the Enneagram. And one of the uh, systems from early Buddhism refers to these hindrances, these five things that... Uh, actually, the deep translation of the original word is that these mm. are coverings over of our underlying, radiant, healthy, true nature, who we really are, that you were alluding to a moment ago. And so the, the point I'm just making is that one of those five, and in many ways the most pernicious of the five, is doubt. Because anything can be doubted, ultimately, right? And there's such a distinction between doubt and not knowing, mm. right? And you're really talking about a kind of openness and spaciousness of don't know, don't know. Mm. Beginner's mind, right, as Suzuki Mm. Roshi talked Mm -hmm. about, uh, which is a way for sexes, but I think really for everybody to realize, yeah, there's a distinction between being identified with the machinery of doubt and getting caught up in that, which has a kind of corrosive impact eventually, because then it leaves you feeling completely unsettled and ungrounded. Mm -hmm. That's really different from a spaciousness of don't know could be maybe so yes i love that and i do agree that i think that's a good posture for all of us to take uh to begin to um reconcile ourselves with groundlessness right yeah groundlessness yeah this is the way the world is Uh, and i have to learn because because when we deny the groundlessness uh, of life we create so much anxiety Mm. and and or resignation or despair you know yeah um, one of the things that has really served me about that is the the two truths side by side. On the one hand, reality is in effect like being on the twentieth floor and you're about to take an elevator. The doors open, you step in, and kooosh, You know, there's nothing beneath your feet. Second by second by second, continuously. That's the groundlessness. On the other hand, reality endlessly renews itself. It's endlessly arising with this profound generosity at the heart, right, of the present moment continually arising and being aware of the arisingness can help people tolerate the emptiness groundlessness that's also true Mm. Mm. beautifully beautifully said we're going to talk about your new book neurodharma in just a second because i really want to dive into it and encourage encourage people to uh, get their hand on it but i do want to ask another uh, a question that's a little bit more personal all right so forest the question i have for you is uh in your upbringing with a seven dad as a six, what did oh, you I love this? What did you love most? What did you love most? 
And that actually could maybe be what did you, what do you love or and what did you love most about your father? And what were maybe one or two of the greatest challenges as a six growing up with a seven dad? Wow, what a question, man! <laughs> I hope we're recording great. this. Oh, jeez! <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, what a question! Um, sorry, I'm just gonna take a second to chew on it because I want to give a I want to give an answer worthy of the question. I just being super transparent about it my dad for all of his ability to be in the office and plug away extremely diligently on a book for 12 hours literally in a day day after day if required to do it um i mean the man has a prodigious work ethic and i don't just say that because he's on the call right now it's just 100 percent true um has a total playful party aspect side that most of my friends have seen at least once. And every time that they see it, they're like, wow, your dad can go if that's what's going on. <laughs> and, and that was, I think, an aspect as a kid that was great and remains great to this day because I was a very extroverted, like playful child. I wanted to run around and throw the ball in the yard and all of that. And, and I think that those were very much aspects of my dad's personality that were super present in the field mm. and are also very consistent with that underlying, um, you know, swinging, swinging from, from tree to tree nature that is kind of present in the seven. So that's, that was definitely a positive part. I think the only thing that I would look at as a, a negative aspect or a way in which our our parts kind of bumped into each other, because I, I have a wing in seven. So I'm a six with a wing in seven. So definitely open to those aspects. In times maybe where I was feeling a little bit extra anxious about something, particularly around like some physical safety stuff. My dad's a rock climber. Uh, he's very outdoorsy. And um, I'm probably predictably afraid of heights. And I don't like being in an object that's moving faster than the speed that I can control. And so these were things that probably wigged me out a little bit more than they wigged my dad out. And my dad very accurately was like, hey, it's going to be okay. It's perfectly safe objectively. And I was like, yeah, but it doesn't feel safe to me. So that might be a way in which our personalities kind of bumped in each other in a, mm -hmm. in a slightly more challenging way for probably both of us. Oh, well, beautifully described. Now let's flip that on its head. And I want to hear from you, Rick. Like, <laughs> I love this. Like, what do you love most about forests, right? And we're thinking about this through the lens of the Enneagram a little bit. Uh, and then what were some of the challenges of parenting a six? Wow. I mean, I, I love Forrest, period. And I love and respect just so many things about him. And um, in terms of the frame of your question, it's interesting that one thing that comes up for me that I don't know the Enneagram system deeply. Maybe it's also a hallmark of my sevenishness that I, I understand my type really pretty well. But other people, whatever, you're on your own. <laughs> a little bit, not, not exactly. But, so I'm very open to correction here. But what I think about you, Forrest, uh, mm -hmm. kind of say it to you directly, that was so characteristic of you always was this profound sense of justice mm -hmm. and deep commitment to justice mm -hmm. and fair play. Now, to bring in another system, maybe it's because you're also a Libra, uh, which I'm on the tail end of Libra-ness given my birthday and rising signs and whatnot. Libra Scorpio, actually 60-40 Libra, 40 Scorpio, actually describes me pretty well, too. We really want to get into the weeds. <laughs> but Forrest just always was incredibly committed to fair play. Yeah. 
profound integrity, decency, support for others, troubled by people who weren't being fair. And I wonder about, I guess I, I think of it almost like the other side of the coin of, of doubt, the, 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 the very intense feeling for justice. And maybe that's the loyalty, loyal to mm -hmm. justice, so and justice seeking. And I think that's just been super central for Forrest. And it makes him completely trustworthy as a person. Oh, well, you can completely that. trust Forrest, whatever, you know, just bone deep, trustworthy mm -hmm. in, his, in, a, in the core of his being. So and I, it's great. It's great to have a, you know, you're, I don't know if either you, you guys, you know, Anthony or Ian or parents, but to feel like your kid has bone deep integrity it's just one of the most beautiful things to have is to feel as a parent and know is really true. Wow, my, my kid has profound integrity. Both our mm. kids do. And Interesting. Yeah. I have a, my oldest is a six, and I have uh, this, the same. I mean, it resonates with what you're saying. I could say the same yeah. thing about him. That's, awesome. That's interesting. And I was going to ask. I'm glad that you said that for us. That you mm. wing seven, uh, Rick. Do you know where you wing? I really can go both ways. I mean, uh, this is where it gets kind of complicated. Um, I'm a very, I'm a very peaceable person, and I'm I'm skeptical and I'm analytic, and it's my nature. I'm to slow down and really try to understand things. On the other hand, I think of it a little bit like my dad's culture coming through North Dakota, growing up on a ranch there, where you're really polite, you're really polite, you're really polite, but at a certain point, it's like, hello, eight. And with a real strong feeling of justice and loyalty there as well, loyalty to the downtrodden. And at a certain point, no, do not mess with me when it comes to people I care about. Mm -hmm. So I, I also think of that a little bit as another metaphor, my Scottishness. On the one hand, very analytical, very philosophical, you know, good in business. On the other hand, do not mess with Braveheart. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Uh, so good to hear uh, a, a dad. We've never done that, right? Yeah, with that was, with a, yeah. a, a that was cool. Good for you, Ian. That took courage. Yeah. Well, That's really lovely. What's yeah. your type, Ian? I'm a four. Uh, uh, the, yes, uh, I am a, uh, a four that uh, uh, if you had known me as a young man, that would have been a lot more obvious. Um, yeah, I can feel that. It's so, male fours. It's harder to kind of track it's not so much a cultural the female for the ingenue character obviously in a lot of film uh it's a well-known type but in men we don't see it. it we don't recognize it so readily yeah yeah i mean it, you know i was a very sensitive kid i was very much an artist i was drawn yeah. to it I, I you know i had a i was very attuned to beauty and aesthetics uh, mm -hmm. I loved poetry. I loved songwriting. Uh, I also loved, I, I learned to love my own suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, I also, if in, and probably in my, you know, twenties would have said I was addicted to my own suffering. It'd be, I organized my identity around, right. uh, the, the, the suffering of my early uh, childhood, which was profound. I had a, a father who was who died of alcoholism and drug addiction. Growing up with that was uh, a real challenge, as you can imagine. Mm. Uh, lapsed into my own addiction to drugs and alcohol, and mm. you know, there was just a lot of very forish material, you know, uh, yeah. happening there. And uh, yeah. it took it took a lot of work, I think. And to your point, I love what you said about the this core um, that that is. Um, that personality tends to mask, right? right. And if we, if we think about personalities uh, as a constellation of adaptive stratagems uh, and things like that, 
that we use as a defense, right, against core wounds, right, and even trauma, early trauma. You know, these are ways that we've learned to cope and to get our needs met in the world, uh, in the face of a world that's overwhelming, right, as a, as a mm. little person. Um, and so uh, we in the Enneagram world would, would talk about essence, that, that mm. there is a core essence that cannot be damaged or wounded, Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, in some traditions, Richard Rohr would call it the immortal diamond. Um, if, if another would be Thomas Merton would, would speak about this as well, you know, this, that, this idea that at the human core, there is an original goodness, a strength, a resilience, a beauty. Um, and uh, in fact, wasn't it, I think it was Merton who speaks about the, I'm going to get the term wrong, the secret beauty or the hidden wholeness. Mm. is what he mm. calls it, the hidden mm. wholeness. And so part of the work in the Enneagram is how do we begin to deconstruct those negative dimensions of personality that stand or in the way they veil essence, they veil that original mm. goodness, that hidden wholeness. And I think that's actually a pretty good, or, or maybe that would align with some of your work beautifully, right? And, and of course, in the realm of positive psychology, for sure, you know, like, as I understand positive psychology, which is not, you know, doesn't have a great deal of depth, that rather than when a person comes into the office, say, okay, what's your problem, right? Like, let's focus on the problem, or let's even pathologize and label the problem. Why don't we focus on some of those other uh, dimensions, aspects, experiences that a person has had that can be built upon that that from which resilience and and self-compassion self-understanding can be developed is that am i getting this right yeah and you know it's you're giving me a notion ian i'm and i'm very interested in your take forest because forest is like um in many in a sense i had a friend who was deep into literature and he said there were probably about six basic storylines and one mm-hmm. of them is a stranger comes to town in all kinds of ways and in some ways Forrest is the stranger who's come to the town broadly (laughs) of mental health who sees it more clearly than many of the people like including me who've been living there for a long time because we're just awash in it already so Forrest feel free to really jump in here I actually would think not so much in terms of positive psychology but comprehensive psychology, Mm. inclusive psychology, that if you think of the range of human experience roughly from, to simplify, minus 10 to plus 10, if Freud and others were principally interested within a medical model on minus 10 to zero, you know, just breaking (laughs) the waterline, get your nose just above it so you're a, uh, you know, as Freud described it, a normal neurotic, and Mm -hmm. that's all it was. Well, that's just half the human story. The other half of the human story, obviously, is above the waterline. And actually, the ultimate human story is the spaciousness, the ground that's beautiful, radiant, and pure already that contains that continuum from minus 10 to plus 10 Mm -hmm. in terms of how the mind operates. So I'm really interested in comprehensive psychology and also very pragmatically because it's through internalizing strengths that we experience above the waterline that we are then more able to deal with what's beneath the waterline and the currents that keep trying to suck us under. So I would kind of, you know, describe myself in that way. And yeah, I think I'll just stop there and see what you think, Forrest, as the the visitor to this town. (laughs) As the visitor to this town. What do you think of this notion of comprehensive psychology? For starters, I think it's totally consistent with 
the work that we do generally and the idea of integrating these different parts, right? Because yeah. what you described there, Ian, is essentially the human story, right? We pop out with some, some something, yeah. call it true nature, call it whatever you want. Um, and then things happen to us. And then we develop a variety of different strategies, behaviors, appro approaches based on the fact that these things happen to us that start to cover over that core nature, right? The world mm -hmm. pushes on us, we push back. It's, um, it's, it's a tragic story in some ways. Like the human story mm -hmm. is a little tragic in that sense. Yeah. And for me, one of the things that I've developed an increasing appreciation for, and maybe this has a bit of a positive psychology lens to it, is the way in which our brain, body, heart system is incredibly intelligent. And the coping behaviors that people develop are there for reasons, 99.99999% of the time. So if you are listening to this and you feel like you have a behavior that is quote unquote problematic or quote unquote maladaptive, whatever the words are negative that we use to label these experiences, there is an extremely good chance that that behavior was actually not only understandable, but actually a survival mechanism for whatever circumstances you were going through back then. And then the question is, of course, do you still need that behavior these days? And that is the central question. Do you still need that behavior these days? And we have to go through this elaborate process of un unspooling ourselves from that behavior that's now causing us pain that back in the day was actually really useful. Mm. Um, but there's a phrase that you're probably familiar with, and it's, it's allying with the defense. Um, and it's a classic strategy where somebody walks into the office and the therapist essentially has two, two options. They can say, yeah, that behavior's bad. You shouldn't do it anymore. Or they can say, huh, here are these aspects of that behavior that make sense, right? And then they can move from there into going, okay, but what do we want to do about it? Most of the time, the second way is the way to go. And that's mm -hmm. a lesson that we can take into our own lives too. I mean, this is just, I mean, this is, goes to show you like the mystery of cross-pollination, right? Because you're, mm -hmm. you guys might as well be teaching the Enneagram yeah, right now. That's right. Yeah, right? totally. I mean, you, you just might as well be teaching the Enneagram. And, and, and it's so exciting. You know, when I find truth yeah. in multiple disciplines or multiple spiritual traditions, I'm like, well, pay attention. Mm -hmm. yeah. Pay attention. Uh, because when you see it uh, paraded out over and over and over again, it means that there must be some core truth that people from different backgrounds have seen over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, I, I find that so, so fascinating. Now, that brings me to this question, uh, Rick. I want to talk about the neuroscience of awakening. Okay, I want to talk. All right. Okay, I, I, I want to talk. <laughs> what are we even waiting for? What are no we waiting play. for? Let's get to <laughs> it. Let's have at it. So, you know, uh, there's a, a friend of mine who's a, a Catholic theologian, a wonderful, wonderful guy. And he, he, he once said, you know, if you took all of the teachings of the Christian mystics, St. John of the Cross, uh, Julian of Norwich, uh, you know, St. Teresa of Avila, on and on and on, Catherine of Siena. He <clears> said, if you were to try and summarize all of their teachings and compress it into one short statement, he said it would come down to this, wake up. <laughs> he said, that's it. That is the summary of all the great teachings of the Christian mystics, right? And of course, I guess uh, you might agree with that, right? That, that part of the journey of, uh, to enlightenment, to awakening, these are words that, you know, for example, Christians should not be afraid of okay. because I do believe they're in the tradition. Um, let's talk about the neuroscience of 
of Awakening and what it's about and, and uh, what you've learned and what you're excited about with it. Huge topic. Um, if you'll allow me, I'll introduce it with a metaphor from early Buddhism that practice, whether it's Christian practice, whether it's therapeutic practice, whether it's Buddhist practice, whatever it is, basically is a cart with two wheels following two tracks. And one of those tracks is the process of developmental change. We gradually heal from certain things. We, we evolve, let's say, in the way we operate in the world is our Enneagram type. We cultivate certain qualities, compassion, mindfulness, wisdom, and so forth. It's a developmental process. The other track is about our true nature already. The ground of being already that's universal, transpersonal, present in all of us, actually present in everything, not simply in, in the human consciousness. And um, that's a view at bottom of the divine, actually, as the ground of all in a kind of uh, non-dual, immanent kind of sense. Um, so both are really important. For myself, I was very good at and engaged with that first track. Grinding away. Forrest knows me as a grinder. You know, I just develop, I chip away, I keep at it. I, I trust that process, right? And it's really, I always, I've always had an intuition of true nature and the ultimate d divinity, really, that underlies everything um, and is the basis of everything and the nature of everything. But mostly I worked on that first track. And it's really in the last several years that I've gotten more engaged in, in the other one, which is about the recognition of true nature already. They go together, as you can appreciate, and I'm sure you know this already, and they support each other. And, you know, if you tend toward one, it's often good to bring in the balance of the other. So that's kind of a framework then for me to say that what struck me about really across all traditions, certainly in the Buddhist tradition that I know well, um, I know a little bit about Christian contemplative practice, not too much. I mean, I was raised a casual Methodist. We went to church twice a year, Eastern Christmas, basically, and maybe a third time when my dad's mother would come to town and visit us on our way to Disneyland. Uh, but anyway, so in terms of what I see, though, is I see seven qualities that are really fulfilled in the saints and sages and great teachers and also individuals that are not famous, but we can look at them and go, wow, you're really pretty transparent to mm -hmm. the divine. You really yeah. are pretty far along. You, you, even under great pressure, you don't, you don't lose it. You know, you're really kind of cooked. So what are these qualities that we see in these people that we have latent within ourselves or to some extent in ourselves that we can develop along the way informed now, 2,000 years after Jesus walked the earth, 2,500 years after the Buddha walked the earth, you know, we know a few things now about our own biology and nervous system. How can we draw upon that, that knowledge that we've acquired to cultivate these seven qualities, which I'll name in just a moment and then kick it back to you. So that's kind of the frame of the book Neurodharma. And it really gets at the point that we can know ourselves in two ways from the inside out subjectively, from what's called a first-person perspective, as well as second objectively, from the outside in, the third-person perspective. You know, in a kind of a shorthand, dharma is in fact is a way of knowing yourself from the inside out. Neuro is a way of knowing yourself from the outside in. And neurodharma mm -hmm. is really where these two perspectives meet, which is full of opportunity for understanding yourself and, and practicing skillfully. So to finish then, the seven qualities, I'll just name them, and we can think about, oh, 
we're all we all have a sense of each of these and we can get a we can recognize that they're really perfected they're really fulfilled in people who are very very far along so steadying the mind and i'll, I'll state them in as practices because that's what they are in effect steadying the mind warming the heart resting in fullness which is a way of talking about equanimity and emotional balance and not being driven by craving and subtle and gross. So those first three, steadiness, lovingness, fullness, they're, they're pretty familiar to us. Then we have the next three, um, being wholeness, a sense of being whole, everything included, undivided, accepting yourself fully, and being aware of the sense of the mind stream as a whole, being wholeness. Fifth, receiving nowness really resting at the front edge of now, that emergent edge that we talked about earlier that is both passing away continuously and being endlessly renewed, receiving, nowness. Sixth, I call it opening into allness, which is a way of talking about a sense of the self-world boundary becoming more diffuse, becoming softer, blurrier, feeling sometimes one truly with everything, recognizing that this moment of existence is a local expression really of the universe as a whole, opening into allness. And then we have last, I call it finding timelessness, that opening into that which, as the Buddha put it, is unconditioned, distinct from the conditioned unfolding of the Big Bang universe, and recognizing that sense within ourselves of what is timeless, absolute, full of possibility, and potentially, and this is how I feel it too, infused with a kind of transpersonal um, awareness of some kind, mysteriously, and even love. Mm. So those are the seven. You know, steadiness, lovingness, fullness, wholeness, nowness, allness, timelessness. And you can just feel them, and you can feel mm. the ways in which they can be developed. And so what that book's about is a serious crack at, okay, let's take a look at it. How are each one of these seven qualities um, affected by the operation of your own nervous system? Uh, as we understand it so far, neuroscience is a baby science, but we know more than nothing, so let's make use of the something that we actually do know um, and have a kind of delight about it and a joy and an, and an inquiry. And so the book actually does explore what in the world is going on in your brain when you feel one with everything, rested in the present moment with an open heart, completely at peace. What's going on in your brain when that's the case? And by understanding mm. that, how can you strengthen those neural circuits and increasingly develop those qualities in yourself, those seven qualities, as stable traits? Wow. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I like it already. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. You're also describing, I think, things that in the Christian tradition are true, right? Mm -hmm. you, yeah. I was just thinking about James Finley. I was thinking about uh, Richard Rohr's work on the cosmic Christ. I was mm -hmm. thinking about Merton, uh, who I love. I love, yeah. love Merton. Uh, and I was actually thinking about the great Catholic mystics, that what you're describing is mm -hmm. so aligned with what, what you know, they have. Yeah. To, and I'm always telling people, well, you know, Christianity is a Near Eastern religion. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> let's, let us not forget. Um, and so I, I, I just love this idea because I think this was certainly a Franciscan idea. He talked about the great chain of being. 
<laughs> and this idea about the interconnectedness of all things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think I, I had, a, I won't bore people with the story or you with the story, because, but it, maybe at a later date, um, uh, you know, I had an experience of prof- just a profound experience as a little boy one time, and it lasted about eight seconds. And I would characterize mm-hmm. it as a truly mystical experience. Um, it was uninvited, unbidden. I didn't know it was coming. I did not, I was not thinking of, you know, I was eight years old. What do I know, right? Riding a bike down the street. And I had this prof- out of nowhere on this beautiful fall New England day uh, on an empty street at 7 a.m. on a Saturday. Um, I remember exactly where I was. I can remember the, 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 the maples changing in fall against this azure blue sky and this sense out of nowhere that everything was all right mm. yeah. and that I was part of some great chain of being. Mm. I couldn't have, I could not have, you know, explained it this way as a child. You know, all I knew is that I was in the profound presence of some higher power that was personal and that loved me yeah. uh, and knew me. And um, it may be for us to, to good news to a six had my back. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, you know, and so these potentials are in us, you know, I think, I think so much of spirituality is learning to know what you know, Mm. Mm -hmm. you know, learning to know what you already know. Uh, and, uh, okay. So you have these seven, um, I'm not sure how to describe them. uh, Qualities. Qualities and ways of being. There's a term you can take the fruit as the path. Right. So they're both the results of practice and methods of practice. Yeah. Right. But there are seven. You, I mean, this is not a book that just sort of sits around in the ether and talks about abstract ideas. I mean, there's some very practical step-by-step things that people oh, yeah. can do based on neuroscience to develop yeah. these traits, if you will, or these ways of being in the world, of moving through the world, of showing up for life. What are, can you just give me a, a sample of, maybe I should ask Forrest to give me samples of it be, because I, I feel like I'm ignoring you, Forrest. I'll get back to you. Don't no, panic. I, yeah, uh, I feel great. Uh, Rick, can you just tell folks a little bit about those practices, the practical things we can do to? to... Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's great. So I'll, I'll give you just a couple examples, right? And these are things that people can start doing immediately. So let's start, let's say, with, resting in fullness, you know, which goes to the ways in which in our own biology, you know, you may know the title of the book on stress from Robert Sapolsky, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, Mm -hmm. right? And the thing is, when we feel authentically in the moment that our needs are sufficiently met, the body biologically defaults to what Forrest and I call the green zone in which there's a a sense of renewal, repair, recovery, uh, conservation of resources biologically um, in the body and in the mind in terms of our three major needs, which could be structured as safety, satisfaction, and connection. There is, respectively, a basic sense of calm or peacefulness, a sense of fullness and contentment terms of satisfaction and a sense of lovingness, open-heartedness, warm-heartedness, friendliness, simple, ordinary friendliness in terms of uh, our needs for connection. That's our, that's our resting state. That's our home base when we're not driven from home by a sense of a, uh, invasive, unmet need. 
the takeaway from that is that people can repeatedly internalize genuine experiences of, okay, in this moment, I'm basically all right right now, which is mana from heaven for sixes. <laughs> Basically, my whole family, we're all a bunch of fear points. Our daughter's a five. I think I could say that as well. And so here we are, that you're actually all right in the moment. You can let that sink in. Uh, In the moment, you're not starving. You know, you're not always basically okay in the moment. But if in the moment you have the basis for a genuine sense of gratitude, Mm. gladness, contentment, a sense of you've accomplished so much already, goals are being attained continuously in the present, you can then rest in a sense of contentment. Similarly, when you have a sense of warm-heartedness flowing out or flowing in, you can rest in the sense of that, which, in the famous saying, neurons that fire together, wire together. As you sustain these experiences, feel them in, in an embodied way, and have a sense of what's rewarding about them, what feels good about them, those are neural factors. Those are, neural, those are factors of neuroplastic change. You are gradually hardwiring into yourself traits of resting state, um, peacefulness, contentment, and love. So I would really encourage people to think about, you know, half a dozen times a day, not a big deal inside your own being, when you actually have the authentic opportunity to feel relatively safe, satisfied, or connected, slow down and take in the good for a breath or longer. Let that really, really sink in, and it'll change your experience of that day. If you say to yourself, I'm going to do it today, half a dozen times, it'll change your day. If you do it three days in a row, you'll notice that your inner being will start to shift. If you do it 10 days in a row, people will ask you, hey, what, are you on drugs? What's gotten into you? <laughs> you know, are you on some new diet? What's up? You know, uh, Because something has gradually shifted inside. You feel mm-hmm. more full continuously. Mm-hmm. That's one. Here's a second one that's really cool from cutting-edge neuroscience. And people can do it if they want on their own. If you look down and near your body, like within three, five feet of yourself, that naturally tends to force a self-referential, egocentric kind of perspective, which makes sense if you imagine our ancestors 10 million years ago, right? Uh, Back in Jurassic Park, even further back in time, let's say, uh, than that. Um, You know, they're... Friend or foe is really close. You got you to gotta be on your toes for that. But if you lift your gaze toward the horizon, or if you imagine doing it, take that big picture perspective, bird's eye perspective, what that does neurologically is it actually shifts us from being caught up in me, myself, and I, opens us into a more impersonal take on things, and it quiets activity in a part of the brain called the default mode network, which is where we go when we're ruminating, especially mm-hmm. negatively ruminating about various things. Just that, the sense of things as a whole, the bigger picture, the wider view, blah, boom, has an immediate impact that's tracked neurologically by a shift from a lot of activation in the midline of the cortex, which is very caught up with mental time travel, going into the future or going into Mm -hmm. the past. Um, And instead, when people have a sense of things as a whole, the quiet activity in that midline, including in the default mode network, which is toward the rear of it, and activate networks on the sides of their brain, particularly right-sided if they're right-handed, the opposite if they're left-handed, which are involved with holistic gestalt processing. Just that, that sense of, Spaciousness, openness, 
is a fantastic thing that mm. people can do in just a handful of seconds. And with time, you start to develop more of a sense of the trait, of that sense of spacious awareness in which various things are happening. Mm. Those are two examples. Wow. Yeah. All right, Forrest, are you doing these practices? <laughs> Great question. This is the question. 100% the money question right here from you, Ian. So I'm really glad you asked that. A uh, couple of things to sort of dance around that a little bit. In, in short, uh, much more these days than I used to, and I found them very fundamentally useful. Um, my dad is totally a practice guy, so I'm glad that you asked him, what are the specific things we can do? That's absolutely his lane. And we talked about this a little bit when we had our conversation, actually. So much of this is about self-awareness, right? Because you can have a laundry list of practices and tactics and ideas, and then the question is, are you actually applying them? Are you actually doing the things yeah. that we say will theoretically make us feel better, make us show up better in the world? Um, so the power is in the practice of raising the gaze or opening out away from us or activating those networks in the brain. But the trick is recognizing that you actually have to do that in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so funny you should say this because I've read a thousand books on meditation. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and sometimes yeah, and, and great line. So, so sometimes you know, just you, you think that reading it is doing it, mm -hmm. you know, and you just pat yourself on the back. But you know, <laughs> after a while, you're like, you know, you may better hit the cushion before you read another book uh, and, and see if actually what you're, if doing it actually will yield the results. Yeah, uh, that you're reading about, right? Uh, yeah, and we'll we'll hit meditation in a moment because I I can't think of a better accelerant uh, for some of the things that we're that we're talking about. But could, Forrest, mm -hmm. continue on about this question. Yeah, no, I I just think that this is the this is the the money question that we're engaging right now in the self help, personal growth, psychology, all of that space. We um, there's a great I believe that this line is from Young. I want to give the proper attribution. It's uh, the client doesn't need a new idea. The client needs a new experience, mm. and that is what we're wrestling with in this entire industry. And in, at least in my opinion, as somebody mm. who has a podcast with 200 episodes full of great ideas for people, mm. the fundamental question is: Are you actually going to do the work? And mm. man, it's hard to do the work sometimes. You know, and you really raise a great point, and I don't know how to answer this. Uh, well, I, I mean, I can say this as someone who probably attends four 12-step recovery meetings a week, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and I That's could, real practice. Yeah, that's very engaged, yeah. Yes, it's, it's amazing how you can be inspired to practice something when your life's on the line. However, uh, you know, although some don't, I guess, you know. Um, yeah. I, I guess, uh, you know, in my experience there... Um, one of the things that is so uh, uh, played up or emphasized is this idea of a spiritual experience. Like all of mm -hmm. these things mm -hmm. just don't matter unless you have first had a spiritual experience. That, that underlies everything. You, you don't go to NA meetings or AA meetings or whatever your A is. Um, you, well, actually, initially you go because you think what you're going to be taught how to do is not to drink or drug. That's mm. not, that is actually not what gets talked about in those meetings. Mm. Uh, it's not about technique or strategy. It's about how do you develop a spiritual worldview that actually can supplant and approve upon uh, the experience you were looking for in drugs and drinking. 
right? Mm. Because once you take that out of the, the, the center of the human person, you got to replace it with something, right? Yeah. And some of these practices you're, you're talking about, Bill Wilson was very attuned to, really mm -hmm. attuned to. It, you know, it's amazing yeah. that step 10 uh, in, in, the, in, the, in our tradition talks about improving conscious contact with God uh, through meditation. And that was written in 1935, uh, mm -hmm. you know, or 1950 yeah. something by the time the 12 steps came out. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's all about in the practice. It, it's not in the theory, it's, uh, it's in the practice. And I, I have to remember that uh, just about all the time, all oh, the time. Same. So uh, awakening, enlightenment. Uh, and can I say too, it's about the practice, right? We, we tend to think it's about getting to a goal or to a certain mm. place. Yes, I, I, I agree. And I think, uh, gosh, there's so much rich stuff to talk here. And I know that we only have just a little bit of time left, but I, I just feel, you know, when you, <sighs> I feel all shimmery right now. I feel. <laughs> it's a good conversation. I, yeah. I, I, I feel like uh, I've got a little bit of, like my blood is carbonated right now and it's kind of running <laughs> through me and I don't know where to stop, you know? Well, can, can I just toss something out there really quickly in terms of what, what Anthony was just saying? Because I think that this is also part of it. And I would love your take on this, Ian, as somebody who is so actively engaged with, um, with your own practice of going to those meetings that you were talking about a moment ago. A pattern that we see all the time in the personal growth therapy space is that somebody has a challenge then they have some kind of inciting incident. And you were talking about a kind of inciting incident there, Ian, when you talked about a, a spiritual experience. That's absolutely an inciting incident for a lot of people. And so they seek help and they start taking on these practices that create a very meaningful, positive change in their life. They see themselves starting to get better. And then because they are getting better, they start to slide on the practices, right? They stop going to the meetings or they stop following the diet that's making them feel better. Or they stop doing whatever it is that they're doing. And then they backslide. Of course they backslide because they're not doing the practice anymore. But they backslide and they go, oh, but I've put all this work in. Why am I just back where I started? And so we see this as this common pattern, right, that happens. And so it's not just about keeping on doing it when it's taking the pain away, it's about keeping on doing it even when you feel pretty good right now mm -hmm. because it's a preventative practice just as much as it's a recovery practice. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, mm -hmm. when I kind of got that structurally, it was a total game changer for me in terms of my own engagement with things that were making me feel better in the world. And it yes. just really upped my consistency. Yes. You know, um, one of the things that strikes me, and I, this is actually what I was going to try and get to when I was speaking earlier, and then I had to make up my answer because I couldn't remember it. Um, <laughs> you've done that before. Don't lie. Um, oh, you, get so halfway, you get halfway through something, you go, why did I start talking about this? And then you have to like, you know, start push the BS button. Um, so one of the things that seems to be absent to me, and this is one of the benefits of being in a 12-step community is I think it's really hard to do this stuff alone. Mm -hmm. For sure. I, I, it's really hard to do it alone. And, I, and I, what I haven't seen a lot of discussion of is how do we form communities uh, mm. of people that are encouraging each other and, and sharing their obstacles and their successes uh, on the journey toward achieving these seven ways of being in the world or sobriety or however we want to put it. And I'm just wondering, like, are you guys 
feeling that too? Like, how do you create communities of, I mean, maybe in a sangha or in a centering prayer group or whatever it is, I don't think most people have those communities and to do it alone is tough. Mm -hmm. Well, I very much agree with you in in general. I, I think there's diversity of different kinds. I mean, for me, one of the great benefits of encountering the Enneagram was realizing that my wife was not wrong or bad or mean. She was just a six <laughs> and kind of raining on my parade. <laughs> and it wasn't so personal. So there's diversity. And I, I think there there really is diversity here. And, and some people are particularly supported by community. Other people get a lot of practice as a lone wolf. And, you know, they're sociable, but fundamentally they're more independent. So I think there's that kind of range to some extent. Mm. But in general, I certainly agree with you. It's interesting that in the Buddhist tradition, there's this emphasis on the three jewels, as it were, and community is right up there with the teacher and the body of uh, information and the teachings. So you have the teacher, the teachings, and the community of the taught, essentially. It's really, really true. Maybe a last thing I'll just say is that, I know this is central to your own work, Ian, at bottom, it's about love, really. Mm. It's easy to get schmaltzy about it, but it's it's beyond sentimentality. It's really about being aware of the kind of overflowing generosity of the universe, which is inherently the case, even if some of what is manifest is Putin invading Ukraine or children going hungry in the streets of Oakland or Mumbai, right? It's all part of the whole thing. But the whole thing, as the whole thing, is is perfect already. It's okay already. It is simply what it is, right? And it, its isness is extraordinarily loving in its generosity, its benevolence, its beneficence. So in, in that sense, um, I have found for myself that as as my own practice has kind of you know noodled along <laughs> over the years, <laughs> one mistake after another that I come more and more back to the sense of the kind of inherent trustworthiness, the friendliness. That was Einstein's word. Is the universe a friendly place? That's the what it was. The inherent friendliness you. of existence. Yeah. And which, per- which means the inherent goodness and lovingness that's native to all of us. And to trust in that, you know, I think that's one of the hardest things for people to trust, which is to say their own good nature. People are quicker to trust others than to deeply, deeply, deeply trust the goodness in themselves. And they have Mm -hmm. faith in it. I mean, that's one of the factors in Buddhist psychology, conviction, sometimes translated as faith, not so much in a higher power, but faith in the path, faith in the practice, faith in your goodness, faith in your friends, faith in your teachers, you know, faith in the fact that if you lift the cup, you know, you'll you'll get some water, that kind of faith, (laughs) Mm, practical faith, informed faith. Mm. Uh, and we can have that kind of faith in ourselves. And that's an incredible liberation. Mm. All right, everybody, I am talking to Forrest and Rick Hansen. Uh, Rick has written this wonderful book, Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. They are authors of a good number of, of other books. Forrest uh, is co-author of this wonderful new book, Resilient. Uh, what's the subtitle again? How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness. Yeah. Right. Anthony, you need um, to read that. 
<laughs> okay. I'm just saying Somebody's you. projecting right now. <laughs> We're a wash it. Just no, all that the was things during this bald, conversation. That's right. Bald-faced projection. <laughs> Shameless projection right there. Uh, and, and also, this book I love, Buddha's Brain, um, yeah. the, the Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom. And one of the things that I have so enjoyed about this conversation, and I, we could do a whole other episode on it, is really the neuroscience of spirituality, whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist or a Hindu, whatever it is, right? That there is a neuro, there, there, so much of spirituality uh, can, oh, I don't want to say this. Our appreciation for spirituality can be so enhanced by recognizing mm -hmm. the neuroscience that runs behind it. You know, like, let me give you an example of this, Anthony, because I think this will help you. Because you need, you need this help. <laughs> so, you know, like when I realized from, from reading, you know, like around evolutionary psychology, mm -hmm. that, for example, there's a reason you're afraid, Ian. Because all those years yeah. ago on the Serengeti, somebody was chasing your ass and you really <laughs> needed to be afraid a lot of the time. But you don't need to be, you don't need to have that level of fear running in your life at the, yeah. and, and tyrannizing your life in the mm -hmm. present moment. And when that happens, it's not because you're a bad person or a weak person. It's just because, you know, guess what? That mechanism is still alive and working in you despite the fact that the same threats no longer are present. Am I getting this right, Forrest and Rick? Absolutely. You're so much Bang smarter on. than yeah. I am. And then that created a space for like being more, being self-observant, of being patient with myself, of saying, well, of course you're afraid. That's what humans do. Mm. And, and until such time, 10,000 years from now, that we're no longer, you know, sort of held hostage by this, maybe we will not be as much, right? But, but what we're talking about is the understanding that comes to us, I think, through an understanding of the of the way that the, the nervous system works, the way that the brain works and all this stuff. I just think it's so powerful. And I thank you for your work, Forrest and Rick. It's, it's so fantastic. And I wish we were neighbors. I, oh, I it would do. be very cool. Wouldn't it? Be... I, I would love it. I if I could, so I want to just share like two, two kind of quotes with you. And, and first, I got to give Frida from Reichman credit for the saying oh, that sorry, Forrest that talked was, about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, especially young. It's given that she was yeah. a woman kind of rebuking the male establishment. You know, they don't need any more heady interpretations. They need experiences, you know, yeah. so that part. First, you may know this one already, Ian and Anthony. How many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> Only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's kind of like a koan. It's yeah. great. And that's what Forrest was talking about. You know, how yeah. the, the, the heart of the matter really is motivation, motivation mm -hmm. and practice. And as you said earlier, Ian, the ways in which community can be a great support for motivation. And we practice yeah. with others, for others, and alongside others. So that part. And then the other uh, saying is that your mind takes its shape from what it rests upon, Ooh. for better or worse. And the modern update would be that with repetition, your nervous system, literally in terms of structure and function at the cellular and even molecular level, takes its physical shape from what it um, repeatedly rests upon, uh, for better or worse. And so for me, the takeaway from that a little bit as a summary of practice is to rest your mind upon what draws your heart. Mm -hmm. 
Beautifully said. So gradually that becomes what dwells within you. Ooh, mm. That's good. I'm thinking about even a, that great scriptural verse about uh, as a person thinketh, so he is. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly uh, right. That's, this is, again, one of those great truths that seems to pop up uh, across tr traditions, so we should pay attention. <laughs> one of my personal little sayings in meditation is we become what we behold. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. And it's so interesting to ask this, what does draw our heart, mm -hmm. right? Most people are drawn to what is beautiful and good mm -hmm. and helpful, including in very simple ways. And then it's to kind of honor that a lot and then find the systems and structures like going to four meetings a week that, that help you keep, you know, acting upon th that draw. Uh, who was it? Uh, it's one of these uh, theologians, Alfred North Whitehead, one of these process theology, talking mm -hmm. about the divine as, a, as luring us. That was the word. I think you would know better than I, Ian, right? Mm -hmm. We're being lured almost. We're drawn in that direction and to listen to it and give over to it. Mm. Well, everybody, I want to remind you that we are speaking with Forrest and, and Rick Hansen. Uh, Rick has this new book, Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. Forrest, how do people learn more about what you all are doing? Uh, the best place to find us these days is probably on the Being Well podcast. You can find Being Well on any podcast platform. We release one episode a week. We talk to a bunch of fantastic people, people like Ian, who was on the podcast just <laughs> recently. Um, my dad, you can find his stuff at rickhanson.net. And also, honestly, one of the best ways is probably just to plug his name into Google and it'll all pop up for you. Yeah, and just so everyone knows, that's H-A-N-S-O-N, not S-E-N, H-A-N-S-O-N. I'm always spelling my name on podcasts. I have a much harder name to spell than you, Rick and Forrest. But uh, I, I always want to make sure that people don't waste their time going to the wrong spelling because that might be <laughs> an owner of a used car lot somewhere in Topeka. Um, I feel like this has been a spa day, Ian. <laughs> been a spa day yeah. yes it's been a spa day yeah this is i'm swimming in it right so good <laughs> i love that so line. good well anyway uh, typology friends uh, may you have love may you have joy may you have peace may you have healing may you have rest until next time Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.